You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And then in 44, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So if you've been with us for the past few years, we've been in the book of Matthew. Uh, you'll remember our journey through the book, and we've gone through 12 chapters so far. Uh, and Matthew tells us early on in the gospel, uh, this line is kind of a tagline for the gospel. Jesus went throughout the countryside preaching about the kingdom of heaven. And so he's done incredible things. He's said some things that were controversial at the time and in our time. And he started telling stories. So we call these stories parables, and they serve a very specific purpose in the Gospels, and we're going to talk about that some today. But first, uh, let's look back to the last few weeks, the last few parables we've talked about. So we talked a few weeks ago about the parable of the sower, you know, the guy that goes and he scatters seed and it lands on all kinds of surfaces, and then it grows depending on the soil it lands on. And then we heard Uh, Also, about a story Jesus talks about a man who plants in his own field, and an enemy comes in and plants weeds there too. And then last week, we talked about the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, and this idea that something as small as a mustard seed could grow into the largest plant in the garden, how the kingdom of heaven is like that. So, if you're paying attention at home, we're at somewhere around nine parables so far. And spoiler alert, we've got about 15 more to go, two of which we're going to talk about today. And so I hear you saying to me, Houston, why in the world does Jesus keep telling us these stories? And that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. So let's take a moment uh, and see what Matthew has to say about that. So Matthew stops. He stops in the middle of this string of parables, and he tells us, he tells us why Jesus keeps telling these stories. And he says that in verse 34. I'm going to read it again. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So let's pause for a second and talk about what we do in these scenarios. So here we see the Matthew quotes somebody Uh, Some of your translations may say the prophet or Isaiah or just scripture, uh, and all of those would have been interchangeable in Jesus' time to refer to what we now call the Old Testament, and we do this too, right? We say the Bible, scripture, the good word, the good book, you know, whatever we say. Uh, and, And so Jesus is talking about, or Matthew, excuse me, is talking about what the prophet said. So here we see this little blurb. Uh, tells us, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. 
And there you got it. So if you're like me, you're reading this, you're reading your Bible, and you stumble upon something like this, sounds a little cryptic, uh, and you're just like, okay, that was weird, let's move on. But we don't want to skip over this. Here Matthew is leaving a little marker for us to pay attention to. Uh, So imagine with me. We've all seen the movies, TV shows, where there's a detective, right? Uh, Or a home detective. And they've got the wall that's covered in pictures and newspaper cutouts and the map. And all over the wall, there's these push pins with strings and threads going across it, right? So... So here, Matthew, to borrow that imagery, has just put a pushpin in the middle of these stories. He's told some parables. Jesus told some parables, and then there's a pushpin. And then there's more parables on the other side. And so what Matthew's doing is he's putting a pin in the middle of the story, and he's got a little string attached to it. And so he wants us to follow that string back. And when we do, we find Psalm 78. So uh, we don't have time to unpack all of Psalm 78 today. It might take... Uh, the better part of four hours, uh, and David tells me that I only have two, so we'll have to cut it short. I'm just playing. Uh, so what we, we want to do whenever we see a biblical author referencing another passage or quoting a verse is, like I said, we want to take that thread, follow it back, and we want to read that relevant passage, chapter, book, whatever it is, and we want to take the ideas, the concepts, the imagery, the feelings of that passage that they developed there, and then carry it with us to the new passage. And so sometimes this can feel weird when we're talking about this in the Bible, but uh, we we do this all the time, right? Um, We quote movies because we think that lines or scenes from the movie are relevant to what we're doing right now. Uh, Just last night, we were talking with some friends, and somebody threw a bocce ball over the fence. And one of our friends said, uh, it's just like the Sandlot. And the other said, yeah, except there's no beast on the other side of that fence. So if you've seen the Sandlot, you can picture it, right? You can picture that scene of the kids throwing the baseball. It goes over the fence. It's a lot. I mean, like, you get it, right? You see that scene, and you understand how that applies to the situation at hand. And so just like that, Matthew is quoting Matt Psalm 78. And so you say to me, Houston, what are the ideas from Psalm 78? And that's another great question. I'm glad you're paying attention. So if we did a high-level overview of Psalm 78, we're going to see a couple of themes played out. So in this psalm, uh, and you should read it, it's, it's very interesting. This psalm, uh, we're going to hear a retelling of Israel's history. And the psalmist is going to tell us two things in particular. One, that the Lord did wondrous things among, through, and for Israel. And two that their hearts were hard and they turned away from him still. And so again, when we read this psalm, we are faced with this picture of the goodness of God and the hardness of hearts, hardness of our hearts. And this is kind of the fundamental problem that we all have as humans, right? The hardness of our hearts. So another phrase, a classic phrase that we throw around, hardness of heart, hard heart. Uh, We say that a lot in the Bible, but we we don't really use that in like, day-to-day conversation, right? It sounds like a medical condition, doesn't it? So in the Bible, this phrase, hardness of heart or hard hearts, uh, encompasses, you know, the idea of of stubbornness, of self-obsession, arrogance, pride, you know, all these things that mark us as flawed people. 
It's that place in ourselves that leads us to go make bad decisions. It's that part of me that says, hey, you know you want to do it. Who cares who it hurts? Who cares if it even hurts you? And so the psalmist reminds us that this part of our hearts, the part that sees God do amazing things among us and still turns away from him, he's referencing that. So basically what Matthew's doing here is he's pulling back the curtain a little, and he's giving us a peek behind the scenes. So when we read his gospel and we come to this section of parables and we think, well, why does this guy, Jesus, keep telling stories? Matthew reminds us of the brokenness of the human heart. And that's because the stories here are serving a purpose, and they're not just to to teach us lessons or to teach us about first century farming. No, they're doing something way bigger than that. They're capturing our imagination and our affection. The parables are Jesus' tool for changing our hearts by telling stories that stick with us. So think about this. Jesus talks about a seed uh, that grows or a man planting and harvesting, and he's playing with our imagination, right? So he wants to tell a story that's going to stick with us, the type of story that you hear one day, and then two days later, you're laying in bed, and you think to yourself, man, I wonder what that guy Jesus was getting at with that mustard seed. And he's done it. Like, he's accomplished his mission. He wants to tell you a story and say, okay, now you go and chew on that. You go think on that. See, Jesus here, he's doing incredible things in the gospel. He's healing people. Guys who are paralyzed are suddenly walking around. The demon-possessed are freed. People are going to come back from the dead later on. Like, this is incredible. And so we say, surely this guy is the real deal. Jesus, do something else amazing. Show us another sign, another miracle, anything. And so what does he do? He says, sit down, let me tell you a story. Because like the psalmist tells us, God is doing awesome things among us. Jesus did awesome things among us. He's impressing us and he's wowing us. But what he really wants to do is capture your heart. So let me say that again. While Jesus was on earth, he did many things that won our reverence. But he told parables because he wanted to win our affection. He wants our heart. And how is he going to do that? With another parable, of course. So let's flip to uh, chapter 13, verse 44, and we're going to read those other two parables again. So the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pretend something. Will you pretend with me? Let's pretend that we're living in rural Israel 2,000 years ago. Uh, we live in a small village. We're most likely farmers, right? Um, we farm uh, probably not soybeans or corn. We probably farm olives or figs or wheat. We farm wheat. We've got a great wheat field. I'm from Kansas. Amber waves of grain right? And you can see, you can picture it with me. It's beautiful. And so we're doing pretty good for ourselves. We got a good harvest. We had a good year. We're doing great. And now enter the Romans. And so we remember them, right? These guys, they came into our country. They took us over. They started imposing their laws. They start 
extracting taxes from us, outrageous taxes. And so all of a sudden, uh, we can't afford to pay our bills. We can't afford to eat. We uh, can't afford to pay our taxes. Debt collectors come calling, and what are we going to do? Well, the only thing we can do is we sell our land. We sell this land that our families lived on for generations, and all of a sudden, we live and probably still work on a land that doesn't belong to us anymore. Somebody else is getting the profits, and we're like debtors to them, right? And so we hear this guy, Jesus. He comes along, and we hear he's doing incredible things. He's healing people. He's proclaiming the coming of the kingdom. We think, is this it? Is this when I'll get my land back? Is this when whatever, right? And he says things like, uh, he tells the story of the sower, and he tells the story uh, of the man who sows seed and another man sows weeds. And like, we get that, right? That's our world. That's our, that's our imagery that we're seeing in our day-to-day lives. And I say, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. That's my life, Jesus. Like, do something cool. And then he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And my ears perk up because who hasn't dreamt of finding buried treasure, right? Or winning the lottery. Some people, their whole life, their whole hope in life is based on the off chance that they win the lottery, right? And we know that. We get it. Like, we all get what it feels like to struggle from paycheck to paycheck, not knowing how we're going to feed ourselves or pay the bills or whatever. And, and we just think, like, if only I could win the lottery. If only I could whatever. And then all my problems would go away. And so imagine we're sitting there at the feet of Jesus, and we have all of this baggage and history behind us. And we hear him say, the king of heaven's like a man who finds treasure in a field. And, and what's our first thought? Mine is, I wish that was me. I want that treasure. Or maybe it's, I would do anything for that. I would do anything for that treasure. And so, as if he knew what I was going to say, Jesus goes on and he says, then, in his joy... God, the man sells all that he has and buys that field. And so we say, wow, Jesus, the guy sells everything for that field, huh? That's a steep cost. And again, Jesus doesn't miss a beat. He says, again, the king of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so... You know, our imaginations are running, and so we're picturing this guy, and, and he finds this treasure, and, and, and he's like, you know, he covers it up real quick, and he goes home, and he's, and he's electric, right? He's uh, gathering up all his belongings. Um, he's so pumped at the possibilities. I can pay off these debts. I can buy back my land. We'll be set for life. It's going to be great. Uh, and so he's, he's going home, and he's getting everything together, maybe the deed to his house. He's cashing out his 401k. He's going to sell his collectible bobbleheads. Even Grandma's China said it's all going. Everything's going because he found the treasure. Someone stops him, and he's like, what are you doing? You're going, like, what's going on here? And this guy's like, I found it. I found it. And so he's got to go fast, right? Like, we get that sense of urgency. He's got to go fast because who knows how long it's going to be there. So, uh, this reminds me of, a, of something, and so this is, uh, this is very nerdy, so you'll all have to bear with me, um, but have you ever heard of the Green Lantern? 
He's a comic book hero. Okay, here, the, we got a couple notes. So he's a comic book superhero that came out in like the 1940s, right? And they, they did a lot of tweaking to his story throughout the years, uh, but there's one that always stands out to me, and it's the story of how he got his powers. So basically, uh, buckle up, I'm going to tell you it. But uh, basically, this guy, Hal Jordan, he was a pilot for the Air Force, and he crashes in the desert. And then he meets this alien who tells him that he's a Green Lantern, uh, which is the equivalent of, like, the space police. And uh, he says that if Hal Jordan takes this ring, he'll get superpowers. So to my 10-year-old self, this is firing on all cylinders, right? I, and you know, my current self, too, if I'm honest, uh, this, is, this is firing on all cylinders. The idea of finding some magic ring out there, and suddenly I'm a superhero, Right? I mean, like, we can picture this. I remember when I was a kid uh, begging my parents for a metal detector. And just this idea of, like, I don't think that I thought I was going to find a metal or a magic ring. Maybe I did. But I, it was just this hope of something incredible happening, right? Something, stumbling upon something incredible. And, uh, you know, hopefully the metal detector was going to give me an edge. Um, but even as a kid, we get this idea, right? This, this captures our imagination in a special way. And so Jesus says, haven't you ever dreamed about stumbling upon treasure in a field? And we're like, yeah, Jesus, all the time. I think about it all the time. I would do whatever it takes for that. And so he nods and he says, it's going to cost you a lot. And so we pause and we squirm a little bit and he say, well, how much, Jesus? And he says everything. And isn't this the king of heaven that we know from the Bible? Isn't this the, the gospel that we've been told time and time again that we hear preached at church on Sundays? That there's such a treasure waiting for you in Jesus if you'll only take it. But first, count the cost. And so Jesus uh, even tells us about this idea. Uh, and, he, and he tells us this in the book of Luke in uh, chapter 14. Verse 25, he says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his whole life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So I say, wow, Jesus, that's some pretty strong language there. Are you sure that you're asking me to give it all up? Can't I keep this or that? But Jesus isn't asking for everything minus one thing. He's not saying, give me all of your money and your time and your energy, but you can keep the little dark part of your heart that you don't want to give up. No, he, he's asking for it all. And so probably you're saying to me, Houston, that's, that's heavy. 
I'm not sure if I really want to give up all of that. But here's the deal. If it didn't cost everything, it wouldn't be worth anything, right? If it didn't cost everything, it wouldn't be worth anything. So think about this guy who finds the treasure in the field. What if, what if actually it was just a box of old boots? So he's digging, he finds the box, he's like, is this it? It's just boots. So well, he wouldn't have gone and sold everything he had for it, right? It's not worth it. What if the merchant is looking for pearls and he finds one? Oh, no, it's just a rock. It's like he knows what he's looking for. He's not going to go sell everything because it's just a rock. And so we get this, right? We get this idea that, that the cost of a thing is connected to its value, right? Gold coins uh, don't cost so much because they're pretty to look at. It's because they're valuable. They spend, right? I didn't want a magic ring just because it would make me look cooler. I wanted to be a superhero. I wanted superpowers, right? Like we understand the cost connected to the value, so when Jesus is telling us that he's offering something to us that is worth so much that the only thing rational to do is to give up everything to get it. So there was a pastor and a Bible scholar named Diedrich Bonhoeffer who lived in Nazi Germany. And he uh, was critical against uh, Hitler's regime and was persecuted for it, eventually driven out of the country. Then he sneaks back in to preach and teach. Um, he did many incredible things, wrote many incredible books. You should check him out, really. So good. Uh, but he wrote one book in particular called The Cost of Discipleship. And again, it's very good. It's worth buying. It's worth reading. And if you're like me, reading slowly. Uh, but it's worth it. And so in the first part of his book, uh, he talks about an idea called costly grace. And so it's this concept that grace is freely given to us. It's a gift freely given to us, but at such a cost to Jesus that we shouldn't take it lightly, right? It's a powerful idea, uh, and again, it's, it's worth chewing on separate from this. But throughout the chapter, he talks about the difference between costly grace and cheap grace. And so cheap grace is, is that we do whatever we want flippantly because you know Jesus has got this. It's like when you go out to dinner with somebody and you order whatever you want because you know that the other guy's got the bill, right? Uh, cheap grace is the way of living that, that doesn't work our whole life or work to give our whole life over to Jesus, but tries to work to fit him into our life. Right? And we all, we all get that conceptually. We've all been there at different points. Right? So uh, as we wrap up, I'm going to quote uh, from Bonhoeffer because uh, his words are wonderful and uh, better than what I could say. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance. It is baptism without the discipline of community. It is the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. It is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without the living incarnate Jesus. Costly grace is the hidden treasure in the field for the sake of which people go and sell with joy everything that they have. It is the costly pearl for whose price the merchant sells all that he has. It is Christ's sovereignty for the sake of which you tear out an eye if it causes you to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ which causes a disciple to leave his nets and follow him. And later on he says, it is costly because it calls us to discipleship. And it is grace 
because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. And I think this is so good. I'm going to say it again. It is costly because it calls us to discipleship. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. So for those of us today who have answered this call and we've followed Jesus, we're probably at this moment right now, I know I am, where we're wondering why do we struggle so much to do it? Why do we struggle so much to follow him with our whole lives? Uh, and that's normal. That's, that's a part of it. That's a part of this whole journey. And I know that for me, uh, this call to discipleship is a daily one. It can feel like every day I have to wake up and choose to walk this path again. And it can be a real struggle. And I think Jesus' answer to this is the parable itself. So remember that Jesus is telling the story because he wants for our hearts to change. And I think that he wants our hearts to change so that more and more we choose him in his paths. And so it's like this idea that every morning we wake up and we just choose to follow the path again. And it is, it is hard and it is asking a lot of us. But we know and we hope that uh, the more we do it, the more we walk down the path, the easier it'll get. And I think that's what Jesus is counting on, that as we keep spending time in these stories and spending time with our imagination and our affections on him, then it'll help us uh, make these decisions more and more. And so my takeaway from these passages is just a, a very simple idea that Jesus wants to capture in my heart, right? So, so that he wants to tell me these stories so that I'll think more on him and, and uh, imagine my imagination will go more on him, right? So, so what I'm going to try to do from this is I'm just going to try to spend more time praying and listening to him. I think there's no silver bullet that we're just going to do this thing and then the next morning it's easy. There's no magic ring that we're going to find in a field and then the next day we have the superpower of being a great Christian, right? It's, it's just this long lifetime journey in the same direction as some have said. And so what we want to do is we want to just keep spending more time with him, right? Keep spending more time listening to his stories, praying to him, uh, praying for the spirit to transform our hearts and our affections. And so let's do that. Let's just spend more time praying and, and reading his word. It's like simple things that we can just keep walking down this path, keep walking towards him. And I believe that in, over time, uh, his truth will just saturate us, and that it'll be easier and easier of a journey. I hope so, at least. And so I know that uh, for those who have not yet answered the call, uh, all of this is a lot, right? This is, this is a steep price. You can, you can think to yourself, this Jesus is asking a lot from me. And he is. And he is. And you should count that cost. But I'm telling you, there is no treasure worth more than this one. And so, friends, today we're faced with this story and the mixed bag of emotions it can stir in us. But I want to end with this thought. So we've been talking about this parable from our perspective, but we could also uh, flip it and read it from Jesus' perspective. Like Jesus was the man that found treasure in the field and went and sold everything for it. Jesus was the merchant in search of a fine pearl and sold all he had for it. See, you and I are that treasure in the field. And Jesus came, lived the perfect life, died 
on behalf of us and rose again because he knew the truth that you were like a treasure and he'd pay anything to have you. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for today. I thank you for the incredible and wonderful things that you've done in and among and through us and for us, Lord. And I, and I just pray that you'll continue to work in our hearts and work uh, your will in our lives, Lord. I pray that as we go from here, that you would just keep planting those seeds in our imagination and our affection and that you would just keep growing uh, a love for you, Lord. We trust that you have such great plans for us and that you love us and we want to better love you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.